This is Consumed, the podcast that sparks conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm your host, Jamie Lewis, a freelance food and drink writer based in San Luis Obispo. Artist and food illustrator Ana Takahashi was young. Her doctors discovered she suffered from a kidney condition called nephrotic syndrome. By way of treatment, Anna had to basically abstain from salt for one year. In her hospital bed and throughout that year, she drew images of the foods she craved and missed snacks, pasta, pizza, etc. In the process, she fell in love with food illustration, and today that is her bread and salted butter, so to speak. Anna and I have worked on multiple projects together, like when I edited Edible San Luis Obispo magazine and hired her to do illustrations, when she designed the packaging for Eto Pasta and I wrote the copy, and when the two of us dreamt up a wacky wallpaper and textile pattern that pays homage to the city of San Luis Obispo. Look in the show notes to discover how you can get your hands on that hot little commodity. I was really lucky to talk with Anna in person because she leads a very international life with hubs in Japan, where her family lives, California, where she spent much of her adult life, and Italy, where her husband is from. We chatted about her travels, her creative inspiration, and more in the dining room on the second floor of Mihang Lo Noodle House in historic San Luis Obispo Chinatown. Here's Anna Takahashi. Anna Takahashi is awesome because she just sat through me blowing it by not pushing the record button (laughs) on the machine for the first time ever anyway you're so patient and thank you for being here thank you for having me and I'm (laughs) so honored to have been the one to have witnessed this moment (laughs) (laughs) well I'll say it again we are sitting in the upper story of Mihang Lo Noodle House which is like the most intimate precious place and there's so many original things here I mean I think that the lanterns the little lamps with the people um and then this mural over here on the back side of the building is original and I just feel in a town like slow that is moving so fast toward everything being new and having a Sephora and having a you know any day now we'll have a pf changs i'm sure um <laughs> but the fact that this place remains the same it feels actually appropriate for you to be here because you are an old soul i mean i think <laughs> i think we can both recognize that okay <laughs> thank you i'm 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 very honored um first of all i'm i'm just really impressed by how how beautiful this place looks yeah. and it's authenticity it's it's time you know Mm. you can see that it's been here for a long time and that history is something that we're losing everywhere um so i'm so grateful that this place is still standing i know i know i don't think that san Luis would allow a second story space like this now okay so the fact that it's grandfathered in is pretty remarkable just don't stand on the balcony I don't think (laughs) I just think don't stand on the balcony okay so we had talked a little bit earlier about how we met yes and you said that we met through well first of all Brian Terezi with Giornata Wines Mm -hmm. he was starting Eto um, 
pastificio. Yes. And he wanted, he knew that I had spent time in Italy mm-hmm. and you had spent time in Italy, which yes. I want to talk about. Um, you know, you coming from the East and me coming from the West. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to connect us over the packaging for the pasta. Yes, absolutely. So you were, he, and I remember Brian told me about you before I met you. He said, this woman can do anything. And he wasn't wrong. I've actually repeated that to many people. This woman can do anything. You have a very special gift. Um, gosh, thank you. For the arts. <laughs> thank you. Oh my gosh. No, I mean, everybody knows that. Um, but yes, your work on the packaging, I wrote the copy for it. And then um, we got to know each other because I, I had seen your mural in Templeton. And yes. I thought for uh-huh. Edible Slow, when I was in charge, I thought... This person could totally do illustration yes. for what we needed. And we were right. on a really tight turnaround for a story about falconry. And um, we couldn't get a photographer on the job. Yeah. So we had you mm-hmm. do the illustration of the falcon. And it was just so, so fast. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember there was a really tight turnaround, and I remember that when that issue came out, perhaps it was the one of the last issues that um, you had released before yeah. um, it was stepping. The I mean, the the edible was uh, slow was going to go out of it was being sold yes and nobody was buying it at the time yeah and uh my relationship with edible goes back about 10 years now when Mm -hmm. i first saw it in pasadena in a cheese store and as a person who moved from japan to pursue art in 2009 it was it was a dream for me to work for any any magazine, any any person yeah. that uh, would accept my illustration. Mm-hmm. And so, ten years later, when you had asked me to illustrate for Edible, it was a dream come true. And and mm-hmm. I was just so elated and happy. And and so I'm grateful. Do you still get excited when you see your stuff in print? I do. I always. I think dreams come true when you're ready for them to happen. So usually when something happens for me, I feel like I kind of accept it Mm -hmm. that, okay, it was meant to happen. And so there's usually no explosive excitement that I would imagine when I'm still dreaming about it. But I always try to remember where I started mm-hmm. and how much work I put into everything to arrive to that point. So I'm, if anything, I'm just like, yes, I did it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah, that, that's what keeps me going. And the fact that people uh, comment, uh, appreciate mm-hmm. what I create is the fuel that keeps me motivated for sure there's a relationship between the the artist and the audience yes absolutely that really helps and i think being in print 
I still think of it in terms of, I still think of the value of print as higher than the value of online. I can't yes. help it. Yeah, I agree completely. When you can completely. hold it. Um, but when you are in print, it means that there's automatically an audience, especially for a complimentary magazine like Edible, where people will pick it up and they're always shocked, like, I don't have to pay for this because yeah. it's such high quality. But when you know that it's free and people are into it and they're going to read it mm-hmm. or see it, it's there's there's fuel there yeah. for the artists to continue. Right. And I, I completely agree with you about having a physically printed thing that you can hold in your hand and you know go through the pages it just has I think it also has a different readability than when you see something digitally mm-hmm. on an iPad or on a computer screen it's almost a different experience yeah. how you uh, absorb that that content and information and I definitely love books and things that you can hold in your hand just because it stimulates different senses, too. I think you're right. I think it hits the brain differently. I have nothing to back that up, but but But, it feels that way. Yeah, it does, definitely. You talked about when you started, you remember where you came from. Where did you come from? Well, so my dream to become an artist started exactly when I was six years old in my elementary school art class. What happened was that day we were separated into groups and each group received a very famous painting to sketch. Mm-hmm. At my table came Mona Lisa mm-hmm. and I clearly remember the moment when I saw it because it was like a flash of lightning hit my brain mm-hmm. and I went, my mind went blank and In that moment, I promised myself, I'm gonna be an artist. Mm. So that was the moment I decided that that's gonna be what I do in my life. And of course, it it wasn't easy (laughs) because Mm. being a bit stubborn, I was, you know, any setback I experienced, I would be like, no, but I decided I'm gonna be an artist. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm gonna do. So that kind of, kept me on my path throughout my life but you must have had a natural gift for it that I really do think Mm -hmm. yes there's practice with any art I think of it like music too yeah but there is a natural inclination as well and you clearly have that right you knew when you were six that you had it I did maybe to a certain degree and this is where I feel like um For example, education can make or break a human Mm -hmm. because I I did love to draw and I was drawing all the time. I didn't know if I had talent or not because I was a kid and you know it's it was just something I did for fun. And when I was going to school uh, throughout elementary school, throughout my teenage years, I never really felt like I was a good artist and good is um it's a good artist is a very subjective um thing to to decide um because it really depends on what 
people think about that art. And one person might say, oh, it's excellent. It's, it's so great. And another person might say, oh, it's, I can do that too. You know, it's just scribbling or... Or flicking paint. <laughs> right, yeah, I like that I know. But it was his idea first. Yeah, That's why he was in the right time. <laughs> yeah, right. And so going to school, I, I guess there were certain teachers I really vibed with, mm-hmm. and, but mostly not. And, and there was, you know, because there would be people who were really great at drawing things, um, how that school system Mm -hmm. decided was a good way to draw. So I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's up to people around a child or a person to encourage what that person is trying to do in terms of self-expression. So I really wasn't confident about my work until I decided it was good. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, there is also balance when you start working, you also have to satisfy other people's visions and needs as well. So especially if you're being hired to do something. Yeah. yeah. So that was where I really had to start um, honing technique. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was working as a graphic designer in Japan, in Tokyo, I really had to, to learn new things that were not in my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So that's how I kind of developed um, uh, my style, but also being able to design packages or things that are more infographic uh, oriented so well so where where is tokyo where you grew up where i grew up in my childhood was torrance in california really yes i was born in japan but at the age of three my family moved to the states uh, for my father's business and I returned to Japan at the age of 12. Okay. So until at the age of 25, I lived in Japan. Mm. That's an interesting, I did not realize that. That's amazing. So your father's business, what was that industry? I know this from back talking to you before, but I can't remember. Yeah, it was in the optics industry. So he works with light, LEDs, lasers, and he um, he's also an engineer, so he produces new technology with partnering with people overseas. Okay, okay. That's yeah. interesting that your dad works with light yeah. and optics and mm-hmm. you're an artist. So what you talk about being um, a graphic designer in Tokyo, what kind of clients were you working with? I was mainly working with IT companies at that time because mm-hmm. it was in... The, from 2006 to 2009 was when I was in Japan working. Mm-hmm. I was uh, hired as a web designer, and so there was a lot of graphic design that needed to happen, but not exactly illustration. Yeah, not by hand stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So where does the food, I mean, you're very much 
focused on food illustration. Yes. Where does the food fascination come from? When I was 16 in high school in Japan, I developed a kidney disease called the nephrosis syndrome. And what happens is your body can't process water. Your kidneys cannot process water any longer. So you start to accumulate all the water you consume in your body. And maybe maybe you go pee a couple of times a day. But You're like, did you mean to talk about pee on this, on this podcast? <laughs> you know, it's all a cycle. You eat and it has to, it's you know. It's true. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's part like, of our human experience, exactly. right? Well, what happened was I was I was very stressed at that time. I had to start thinking about which universities to apply to, you know, just the general stress of being a teenager also, and also bad eating habits, which was not so much my mother's fault, but it was me eating out, you know, hamburgers and whatever. Even Um, in Japan, teenagers do that? Yeah, they do. (laughs) They do. Because I think of Japanese eating as so, like clean and thoughtful but yes. even teenagers in Japan go off that the yeah rails there, huh? <laughs> yeah we do fall <laughs> off the tracks um, so I started to gain water weight and it was very fast in a week I had gained almost about 26 pounds of water weight oh my. and you know there were no no real symptoms that I could tell before that. Um, maybe there was some swelling in my face, but it wasn't something that would say, okay, let's go to the doctor right now. Anyway, so I, you know, I'm so swollen with water and I, we go to the hospital. The doctor immediately admits me to the hospital mm-hmm. saying, okay, this is a kidney disease. You have this is dangerous, you're at a dangerous point, you're going to be in the hospital. And that was about a month, just when I was about to start my senior year in high school. So the way this kidney disease was to be cured was through diet change. My doctor was a a female doctor who herself had experienced the same disease when she was young. So she said, Anna, if you want to get better, you have to change your diet. Mm -hmm. And the salt intake has to be less than three grams a day, which is like a teaspoonful of salt. That would be so hard for me. (laughs) Which is really difficult. So my mother had to cook every day and there was no more eating out, mm-hmm. no buying food. And, you know, first I was, I just couldn't handle the no salt thing because my, my palate is so adjusted to high, you know, stimulating yeah. um, flavors. And then after about a month, I kind of got used to it. I was like, okay, I can do this. And in that process, I also had to start eating different kinds of food that I never really wanted to eat. That was a lot of vegetables and, you know, um, delicate flavors, broths. And 
during that time, I really noticed a difference in my body. And that made me really think about how what you eat is who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it really affected how I think about food because it's, it's really an investment you make for yourself. And just thinking about how my mom was making food every day brought me to think about people who make food. I want to take a second to talk about a couple friends of the Consumed podcast, like Midstate Containers. My contact at Midstate is Jake Knotts, and I have his permission to share about something going on with him personally. Jake lived in Ukraine for many years, and he married a Ukrainian national, his wife, Anya. They live on the Central Coast now with their three kids, but when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, Jake was right back there, helping his friends, acquaintances, strangers, and even their pets to escape. Since that time, he and Anya have worked with a team of very capable folks to start a nonprofit called Restore UA, which seeks to organize, fund, and execute relief efforts in Ukraine. Jake is still on the ground in Eastern Europe, coordinating with people here on the Central Coast to fill containers from Midstate with humanitarian aid and ship them to Restore UA's headquarters in Poland. Every dollar donated to Restore UA goes straight to humanitarian relief efforts for Ukraine. They even have people sewing bulletproof vests for soldiers fighting Russian forces. It's incredible. The organization is starting to fill up more containers as I speak, and they could really use your financial support. To make a donation and learn more, visit RestoreUA.org. Thank you. Do you want to be more intentional about the meat you eat and feed your family? Have you even considered giving up eating meat entirely because you can no longer justify supporting the inhumane and industrialized system that brings meat to your dinner table? If you're looking for a simple way to guarantee you always have access to healthy, sustainably farmed meat and wild seafood, the Larder Meat Co. is here to help. Since 2016, Larder Meat Co. has been delivering farm-raised beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and wild seafood sourced from right here in the Golden State to customers who demand the highest quality proteins as well as intentional sourcing standards and transparency. A convenient club box from Larder Meat Co. makes it easy to automate the most important part of your monthly food budget. You can build a custom box or choose from one of the many curated bundles that LMC offers. As a Larder Meat Co. customer, you are supporting the ever-dwindling ranching industry that has fed us for generations, and you're building a sustainable future for your family, our ranchers, and the planet. Use code CONSUMED at checkout to save $25 on your first subscription and check healthy farm-raised meat and wild seafood off your grocery list for good. That's LarderMeatCo.com. Promo code CONSUMED for $25 off your first subscription. Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life Magazine, a lifestyle publication that celebrates life and culture in San Luis Obispo, California. I write the food column for Slow Life, and I'm actually going out tonight to cover the new restaurant, Cult, for the magazine. I'm going to meet up with photographer Jess Lerner and owners Nino and Cher Ang, and we're going to eat, chat, and snap, and I can't wait. To make sure you see the final product when it comes out, get yourself a subscription at slowlifemagazine.com. My relatives are farmers in Japan on my mother's side and they've always sent us, you know, fruits or rice that they've harvested and grew and 
And so that food, um, the power of food kind of stuck to me when I was in my late teens. And fast forward, you know, uh, almost two decades. One day I was working on this assignment for Edible Maine about an article for uh, culinary democracy, that was the title. And they had asked me to draw a table full of people from different backgrounds with different kinds of food on the table. And I was kind of in a very strange moment in my life where I was, uh, I had decided to separate from my husband and I had very little money. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do with my life? And, and I was working on this assignment, drawing a table full of people, you know, happy, having conversations and eating food. And when, when I was looking at that illustration, I thought, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to be doing all the time, sharing food at the table with everyone, having a good time. So that's when I decided that I want to dedicate myself to illustrating food stories. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was it, and that was maybe three years ago. It's such a beautiful connection. Food is really, I would imagine, a beautiful thing to cover. Yes. You know, to, to be illustrating in whatever you're doing, oils, pastels, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your favorite, by the way? What is your, like, the thing that you feel is really your best work? My best work. Um, In terms of um, the medium. Okay. I really love watercolor pencils and watercolor. Yeah. Um, Just because it has a... It allows me to work in a way that is either soft or hard-edged. It's For me, it's a very versatile medium. Yeah. And... Yeah, that that's usually the style that I work with when I create illustrations for edible yes okay and I know exactly you have a there's a look to what you do for edible yes that okay so it's watercolor pencils yeah yeah well but food I'm thinking about beautiful you you mentioned your family that's that are farmers in Mm -hmm. Japan you think about a head of cauliflower just it's I mean it's floral it's got the nooks and crannies it's got that beautiful like brain like texture Mm mm-hmm so visceral, so, um, yeah, it lends itself to, it wants to be painted. It wants yes. to be drawn, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of that beautiful food photography we see, mm-hmm. I mean, that translated into illustration. You could find worse subjects to, oh. <laughs> to paint, you know? Right. Yeah, and I, I do, you know, like to of course i i love photography and mm-hmm. i think food photography is one of the most difficult things to do as well because unlike many things that one can photograph there can be many different textures colors mm-hmm. um the way it ref- and you know an ingredient can reflect light there's so yeah. much going on and you really have to know what you're doing so that's something I kind of take into consideration when I draw food, is to 
respect the differences in, in the ingredients mm -hmm. or how to make something look good. Right. Because I think that's where people's imaginations of wanting to have that plate of pasta or mm -hmm. the pizza or, you know, an ice cream um, is, is, has to go. I remember talking to our mutual friend, Jen Olson, mm -hmm. who's just, you know, an yes, ace I, food photographer. Absolutely. An ace. Mm -hmm. um, we often talked about the difference between something that is plated with a photo in mind. Yes. Versus absolutely. something that's plated maybe at a restaurant for you to, that's just for you to consume. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a big difference there. I, I, there's a fine line between, we used to laugh about photographers who use um, tweezers to put a salad right. together. And there's nothing wrong with using tweezers to put a salad together, like don't get me wrong. But there are marketing shots, yes. like commercial shots, right. of things where you wanna see the Velveeta cheese like glisten mm -hmm. under the lights versus maybe an editorial shot that is showing I love my favorite style of photographs is where maybe it's like the meal is kind of already done. Yes. Decay. I love watching things end. I love yeah. crumbs scattered. Mm -hmm. But then there's a fine line between that and it looking like garbage, right. you know, yeah. like trash. And so there's just all these gradations of where do you, where does it still look appealing? Yes. Where does it look overly produced mm -hmm. and where does it look like trash. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And uh, when I was uh, still working as an art director, I, I used to want to become a film art director uh, when I was still living down in Los Angeles. And one of the things I did was styling food or staging a food shot. And that was one of the most difficult things because you're absolutely right. There's a very fine line between something looking absolutely messy yeah. and looking just right. Yeah. And that is a true art, I think. Mm -hmm. And so when I work off of photos to illustrate food, that is something I do have to be mindful of because, yeah. you know, do I draw another crumb or, yeah. you know? Um, yes, it's true. Is the napkin on the shot and is it placed just so? Right. It, I know that there's a term wabi-sabi. I don't mm -hmm. fully remember what the definition is. Do you know what the definition is? Yes. So. And am I on the right track with that <laughs> conversation? Perhaps. Let's I think see so. where it goes yeah. because uh, recently I was translating um, for an Italian art foundation that is introducing Japanese artisans mm. to the world. And wabi-sabi is a word that came up very much a, a lot because there, were many, there are many artisans who are uh, creating teaware mm. for tea ceremonies and wabi-sabi is a very important philosophy in the tea ceremony because the concept of a tea ceremony is to immerse oneself in that moment. So you're looking, you know, holding a teacup in your hand that is very simple, but that's in order not to be distracted from ornate details or 
It's simple because it allows you to have imagination to to appreciate maybe what's not there um, or what you're experiencing in that moment. And Wabi Sabi is the concept of having less to experience more, let's say. So that absence of something is what allows you to actually enrich your experience. Okay, so like negative space and all that. Okay, so I understood it incorrectly then. Wabi-sabi, I thought, was like the art of something that is just maybe like thrown together or the art of casual, you know, something is just placed, but it still looks beautiful. I mean, what we're mm-hmm. talking about is the nature of beauty, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it is subjective. Right. But it also, there, there's, it, when you're going to put something in your body, when you want to eat something, mm-hmm. it has to have a certain kind of appeal. Yeah. It yeah. appeals to the senses, so maybe it is shiny, or right. maybe it is, um, I remember Jen talking about, she loved to shoot meat because it's so, I mean, it's raw, it's visceral, yeah. it's, um, there's just so much there to think about. Right, and your your um, wabi-sabi in this context actually makes sense because oh. it also means to appreciate the transition of things. For example, oh you said, gosh, yes. you know, you, you like to see decay and how things transform in time. And it's absolutely observing and accepting those changes yeah, yeah in life. And what you're talking about is so much... Did you ever study, like, the Northern Renaissance, the the artists who did, like, a rotting pomegranate or a rotting apple, Mm -hmm. flowers that are really on the opposite edge of being alive? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love love the Northern Renaissance, and that's one of my favorite... I studied art history in Mm -hmm. school, and that was just... The most beautiful thing, seeing food, it's really kind of gothic and macabre in yes, a way and yeah. morbid, but on the other side of being alive, you know, where you're really yeah. seeing it in transition mm-hmm. fading out. Yes. But there's a point where you would not want to look at this anymore, where it's <laughs> right. like, yeah. I mean, nobody wants it to be moldy, right? <laughs> right. but something in transition dying. And I think that I really do think that's why people love autumn and fall so much. Mm -hmm. It's like this feeling of there is a coziness, but things are dying. Yes. Yeah. And I I feel like without the concept of, you know, memento mori to to remember one's death, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, the end, I I really don't think we can appreciate life. And... and you know it's not something we think about when when we're living day to day but i feel like these moments where you know when i got the kidney disease mm-hmm. or i recently had a surgery in japan mm, <laughs> fun. Uh, i know and but it's these moments when you're like okay i i can die you know yeah, yeah. but i'm alive and that's also where food comes in because uh so one day when i i used to have a pizzeria with my ex partner um and we had a restaurant on uh, in santa monica 
Well, that was an area where there were a lot of students, a lot of lawyers, and it was a, a lot of people visited that area. So one day the restaurant was full, and I saw regulars who were a couple who had no money. They would come maybe once a month to enjoy a meal. And then, you know, another customer who who pays with his black American Express. <laughs> so right. It's like, you know, these different kinds of people all together eating. And it hit me that no matter who you are, you have to eat. And that's what we are. We have to eat. That's one of the things that is the universal act that we must do in order to live. And just that idea was very powerful. That food is so important. And it's our universal language. And I think it's, it can lead to peace. Um, you know, sharing a table with different people, yeah. even if you can't speak the same language, you're doing the same thing as a human, and that's where food really, you know, grabs my heart because it's such um, a powerful language. We are both, I don't know that this word is a real word, but I'm going to make it up, italophiles. We love, <laughs> yes. not italics, although I do like italics yes, a lot. We I do love too. Italian right. everything. Yes. And um, you're reminding me of a time I traveled on my own to Italy I won a grant through my school to mm -hmm. spend a summer in Italy all by myself, not doing any particular program, but just to go around and see art in its place, like yes. where it was born, yeah. instead of you know through the Metropolitan Museum right. of Art or something on a traveling show. So um, on my own there, there was a hostel that only accepted lone female travelers. It was in Certaldo. Do you remember Certaldo in, in Tuscany? No, I, I don't. Okay. I've never been. And you've never been to Tuscany. I have been to Tuscany, oh, okay. but I haven't been. To uh, I was going to say, hold on a second. Yeah. Um, so we were sitting around this farm table. This is in 1999, mm -hmm. and these women from everywhere. It occurred to me. I mean, the sound of their accents mm -hmm. around the table was unbelievable. Yeah, there were two Irish women who were talking about their experiences with. Um, you know, Irish liberation mm -hmm. and bombings, car bombings. They were talking about how they, when they were children, they remembered these things. Yeah. South Africans talking about apartheid and Nelson Mandela. Um, me talking about nothing very important, <laughs> but, you know, American, Canadian, Irish, Italian, South African, Japanese. It was just the most meaningful thing to sit there. Yeah and eat pasta with these ladies. Right. It was the most international moment I think I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it does, it could bring about peace. We disagreed about things mm -hmm. at that table, but it woke me up so much to the idea of people are coming from different places and you don't know something until you've heard all of yes, the, yes. you know, until you get all the context, which right. P.S., you can't ever get all the context. It's yeah. infinite. It's true. So, um, and, and it's also reminding me of what an international person you are. Before we started recording, I said, where is home? And you right, said, yeah. I don't, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't really exist right now for you. Yeah. Um, so because I, um, it was really 
COVID that pushed me, pushed me and my now husband out of slow. Um, when it happened, uh, we had just rented a home in slow, but we had gone abroad back to Japan and then we traveled to Paris and we already had our tickets back to the States. But before we could return, the pandemic was announced, the borders closed, and uh, that was really what made us decide, okay, where do we want to be? And that was closer to our families. Now, my husband is Sicilian. I'm Javanese, so our, our <laughs> families so are in different places. But we had lived in California for years, and so every place to us is a home in one way or yes. another. And the funny thing about the current situation we have is that Practically speaking, home is very difficult to identify because, you know, we have an apartment here and then a storage there and, you totally. know, our things are spread about, you know, we pay taxes in different places. <laughs> um, you know, that's the practical part of, you know, where home might be. But at the heart, it's really where I feel like I'm connected to the world. And that has usually been at the table. Whether it's in Italy, whether it's in Japan or here, it has always been when I'm having a great time sharing a glass of wine or a plate of you know, pasta or a huge chunk of steak or vegetables that the farmer, local farmer gathered that morning. It's just that kind of human connection yes. that allows me to feel in a home that's bigger than any one location. And so that's something I've, I've come to embrace as my, my personal home. Once more, I want to give love to a couple other podcast friends. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop. And visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Native Nine Wine is part of Ranchos de Onaveros, a Santa Maria winery that sponsors the Consumed podcast. Owner James Onaveros was on the podcast way back in its first season, but if you haven't listened to it, I think this recent blurb from Food & Wine magazine will give you some context on who James is. This is written by Jonathan Cristaldi. James Ray Onaveros is a name to put on your short list of must-watch vintners. A ninth-generation farmer who works lands established by his family in the early 1780s, Onaveros decided to plant vines on the property in 1997, after which he studied at Cal Poly, worked in Sonoma, and soaked up the secrets of the Pinot trade during visits to legendary Burgundy estates like Domaine du Jacques and Domaine de la Romanée Conti. Today, winemaker Justin Willett works with James to produce native nine wines, and they are destined to become commodities to stockpile. 
Out of this world aromatics of savory, wild herbs, leather, and tobacco leaf are complemented by red currants and juicy cherries, all lingering through a long mineral finish. Well, I, Jamie, can confirm that the wines really are that good. Let the stockpiling begin at ranchosdeonaveroswines.com. Do you ever get sad that you don't have a, like a home base? I, I only do when I start to feel uncomfortable about not having my, you know, Your my stuff, my my stuff, and yeah. you know that that can, um, you know, bring a sense of comfort and a sense of having um, your space sometimes. Um, but I'm also glad that I don't have a bunch of stuff. Sure, totally. <laughs> so it's, you know, it depends on how I'm feeling at that moment. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, so it's helped me to remember why I'm where I am at that moment. Yeah. I'm hearing um, somebody coming up the (laughs) stairs, which is part of the charm of this place, is there's this, like, secret door down (laughs) beneath us that faces out on Palm Street. You know, you're talking about sitting at the table and you feeling at home. I mean, I feel it right now. There's a a moment in every conversation I have with people for this podcast where all of a sudden it's like, okay, we understand each other. It's such a wonderful thing to sit down, to slow down, and to have a conversation. Yes. Um, And we're not eating anything, but we are at a (laughs) four-maker table right now that I think is original. Um, We did a project together through Edible Slow that I don't think I ever told you. Mm -hmm. Um, As a writer, I I just, it is, in the end, it is my medium. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing audio here. There's yeah. some film happening. Um, we made a wallpaper together. Yes, we all did. those things. Um, oh, and we worked on the the film yes. for Race Matters together yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to introduce you into every little right. part of my life. Um, but in the end, you know, it's going to be writing that is the thing that I feel most connected to. Yes. And we did a project mm-hmm. together about Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. That was on the one-year anniversary of his death, mm-hmm. um, and Edible Slow. You know the new owner so graciously, Gail Classic. Yes. I mean, big time shout out. She's amazing. Completely. Um, <laughs> Completely. And she said, Jamie, I think you're the right person to write this. You know, I think it was on the last page, maybe of mm-hmm. the of the issue. Write about Anthony Bourdain on the first year anniversary of his passing, yeah. and I thought, cool, okay, and I started to write it. And it's the thing, I get like choked up thinking about it. It's the thing I'm the most proud of, of all right. the writing I've done. It's the piece I'm most proud of. I, I didn't have a deep connection to him, mm-hmm. but we share some mental health stuff. Yeah. And so I was thinking about this wonderful, talented, gifted man who was really blinded by mental illness at, at points in his life. And the piece as I wrote it, the thing that I I, you know, you have these kind of flow moments yes. where it's working, it's Absolutely. writing itself. I I've actually, that. I said that about this and I'm sure you know what that feels like yeah. when something is drawing itself. Yes. Um, heat, we need heat to survive. Mm-hmm. It's, it warms our bodies. We need it to cook, but heat in the, in the form of a flame can like burn a forest down. Yes. It can burn a house down. Water, we need it to survive. 
it's so beautiful in the ocean, but you can drown in water. Mm -hmm. And so the mental illness that he was dealing with, I think it informed his greatest moments of creativity, Mm -hmm. both in the kitchen and as a writer and as a producer, but it also can ultimately, it can, it can kill a person. Yeah. Um, And then you did this beautiful illustration with it of him with a fork Mm -hmm. eating the globe. Yes. Eating the world. Yeah. That piece I feel was one of the best coming together of word and image. Yeah. But you were, I don't even know where you were when you were doing that work. Were you in Italy or Japan? I was in, I was in slow. Oh, you were. Yeah. Okay. So right around the corner from me. Yeah. But it's a beautiful thing that we can do that work together without being anywhere near near I know. each other. Yeah, I agree. And and I when I read that piece it really it really kind of sunk into my heart, you mm-hmm. know, because I I loved what Anthony Bourdain wrote, his books, his shows yeah. and just his being, mm-hmm. his openness to to meet people everywhere in the world try different things you know have conversations with people on the streets or just have this curiosity Mm -hmm. and you being a writer that I truly admire and I just love your writing it's a completely fangirl thing but um it was it was such a great collaboration that I remember dearly and Mm um yeah I feel like working on editorials about food um, is exactly the kind of collaboration that I love yeah. to continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, uh, he's such an interesting figure because he, like, chefs come and go, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Writers come and go. But there was something about him that the world could not handle his passing mm-hmm. me included right there was something about it that just felt so raw and like we really lost a treasure of course yeah. every person who dies we lose something very important in terms of like a, as a society we lost something really really important when we lost him yeah I, I feel that and I, I can't identify why that is I don't think anyone knows it Yeah, just feels like he, he had a very unique kind of charismatic magnetism about him. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I feel, I still think about him. Same, yeah. A lot, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I know. It's a tragedy. Yeah. Your work is um, popping up everywhere. Feels like, what do you want to do? What's, what's like a bucket list job that you'd like to do or a bucket list thing you'd like to produce i would love to produce a recipe book with a Mm. chef or someone you know who has ideas um but what i really would love to create are children's books and this is something that i have done yeah um but i'd love to produce more because I think children's books are so powerful in a sense that there are so many children's books that I continue to go back to. And every time I read them, there's a different significance Mm -hmm. to the meaning of what's written on the page or the drawing on the page. 
And, uh, for example, the giving tree, you oh, know, gosh. it's tear my heart out. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just, you know, um, I think it's one of the most also difficult things to do because, you know, for, first of all, you kind of have to think about how children's view art Mm -hmm. and you can't really draw something like an adult would feel it's the right way to draw it or the right way to express it because Mm -hmm. they have a different way to perceive colors or forms Mm -hmm. so the children's books that I go back to are usually very simple forms um like the the essence of something yes Yeah. yeah and um and it's just so, yeah, like you said, it, it packs an essence. Yeah. And to arrive to that point, I think, requires a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that's at least how I view it. But I would love to draw, um, I would love to create a children's book. Mm-hmm. Maybe also write it, but I do like to work with authors. Yeah. So yeah, that's something I would love to create to to um, leave something for <laughs> for the future generation to totally. totally yeah. Now you've got my wheels turning on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's write a book. Let's yeah. do it. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, um, tell me. I know you've heard the podcast before, so yes. tell me mm-hmm. what is your final meal. And what are you drinking and who's it with? Ooh, um, my final meal is going to be karaage, which is the Japanese fried chicken. Oh, <laughs> I just that's my love language. Love. Fried chicken is my love language. Oh, my goodness. I just can't get enough. Yeah. Um, I love to make it. I love to eat what other people made. I love to buy it. I just love to try all kinds. Yeah. And I would love to have a bottle of Barolo mm. because I I just love Nebbiolo in Piemonte mm-hmm. I just love the, the grapes that come from there so I would love to share it with <laughs> Anthony Bourdain's ghost <laughs> fair, totally <laughs> yes. fair yeah I love it, I love it oh gosh, well you are delightful and so gifted. I mean, just really anything anyone puts before you is is possible for you. And I appreciate you talking to me about it. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's It's been great. That's another episode in the books for the Consumed Podcast, which is produced and edited by me, Jamie Lewis. Special thanks to Stefan and Elisa Geraldo of Geraldo Creative Studio for their beautiful video and photography work that's kind of sprucing up my Instagram feed at Jamie C. Lewis, as well as on the website, letsgetconsumed.com. And thank you listeners, as always, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. <laughs>